Okay, today we are going to the book of Luke, chapter number 23. A couple weeks ago we started a sermon series our, as our identity in Christ. And you may say, but this is a new sermon series. It's called One Savior, One Cross, and Seven Statements That Changed Lives. This is our communion sermon series. You get this once every five times this year. Uh, we'll do it today, and we'll do it the four other days that we have a communion service this year. Um, and we're going to look at the seven statements of Christ on the cross. And so, today we're doing that, and we're going to have a, I, I believe, an enjoyable time looking at these words. Psalm, or Luke 23, verse number 34. That's our first phrase. But Jesus was saying, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. Heavenly Father, when we walked down this path to study the cross, it uh, touches our hearts. And I pray especially today that uh, we will be reflective on all these things, why it took place, and what does it mean what does it mean to say that God loves us? As we reflect on these things and later participate in the communion service, draw us very close to yourself. May this be a significant uh, marking day in our life to say that because of what we have learned today, we've drawn closer. And we thank you, Lord, for what you're doing in our midst. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, as you know, when we have a communion service, I, I desire to move away from our regular course of teaching and, and focus exclusively on the cross of Jesus and preparing our hearts to take of that bread and of this cup. And I've often said this, I know, but truly I don't know that there is anything more piercing to the heart than the fact that Jesus went to the cross for you and for me, for you and for me. It gets personal. And Scripture gives us so many wonderful angles to view this scene. We could go into the prophecies of the Old Testament and read about the cross. We could go into the narratives of the Gospel record and read about the cross. We could even go into the epistles and see the application of the cross to our needs. I've heard pastors say, and literally I have, that after many years of preaching, they ran out of text to preach. Some of them, I do know, had a five-year uh, message program that once they got to the last one, they said, it's time to move on to a new church. <laughs> and they start the five-year program again. I know people like that. Honestly, I do. But I do know that you can spend the rest of forever on the topic of the death of Christ and its ramifications in our lives and if you ever think you could exhaust that, then you could move on to the resurrection of Christ and add another forever to it. In reality, I believe that even in eternity, the focus of Christ will never, never fade in any of its facets. We will be forever praising Him because He died for us. And He gave us this eternal life. So, to touch on it once every uh, three or four months is not enough. But we're going to touch on it today, all right? 
there was a story about a man named Harry Morehouse, or Henry, Henry Morehouse, uh, a preacher from the late 1800s, uh, wrote a couple of hymns that you won't find in your hymn book, uh, served as a pastor. It said that he was a wild young man, and at the age of 16, he was a gambler, a gang leader, and a thief. But there was a revival that came through in 1859, and, and Henry gave his life to Jesus. He just wanted to preach. <laughs> and he would preach the gospel with all his heart, and his favorite text was John 3.16. One day he was in Ireland, and he came across a man by the name of D.L. Moody. And he walked up to Moody and said, I'd like to come and preach in your church. Well, According to the biography that Moody's son wrote, it is recorded what Moody thought and said at that moment when this man came up and said, I want to preach in your church. He said that um, this was a beardless boy. He didn't look much more than 17. And I said to myself, he can't preach. The beards make the difference. I don't know if you know that. It's the beards. Sometime later, Moody uh, returned from a home from a trip, um, and Morehouse showed up in Chicago. Because Moody, his only way out of it was to say, hey, when you come over to this country state, you know, look me up. Well, he came. And he walked in, and he says, well, I'm ready to preach. And Moody didn't know what to do with that. And so he assigned him to a weeknight, a Thursday night, I believe it was, where he didn't think it would have much impact on anybody if this guy mucked it all up. So they, at the time, were having services every single night. And I wonder if that might be a good idea. But uh, that's what they were doing. And so he said, okay, you do it. I have to go away anyway. I had no one to take the pulpit. So they let Morehouse speak that night. He spoke the next night. And the next night after that, and when Moody got back, there was great crowds coming to the church to hear Morehouse speak. He preached two sermons from John 3.16. The third sermon he preached from John 3.16. The fourth sermon he preached from John 3.16. His wife, Moody's wife, said to him, I, I think you're going to like him. He preaches a little different from you. And Moody says, well, how is that? And his wife says, well, he tells sinners that God loves them. And Moody says, well, then he's wrong. <laughs> I just love that response. Black and white, right? So Moody had to go and hear him speak. And that evening he went to hear Morehouse preach. And the young man stood up in the pulpit and said, if you return to the third chapter of John and the 16th verse, you will find my text. And Moody said he preached the most extraordinary sermon from that verse. He didn't divide it into second lees and third lees and fourth lees. He just took the whole verse. And then he went through the Bible from Genesis to Revelation to prove that in all ages God loved the world. God had sent prophets and patriarchs and holy men to warn us. Then he sent his son and after that they killed him. He sent his Holy Spirit too. And I never knew up to that time that God loved us so much. The heart of mine began to thaw out, and I couldn't keep back the tears. It was like news from a far country. I just drank it in. Night after night, Morehouse preached from John 3.16. 
And it had a life-changing effect on D.L. Moody. He says, I'll never forget, I, I have never forgotten those nights. I have preached a different gospel since. I have had more power with God and man since then. Morehouse lived a pretty significant life. And when he was much older, he felt ill. And on his deathbed, he looked up and told his friends, if there was in God's will to raise me up again, I should like to preach from the text, God so loved the world. I hope when we talk about the crucifixion, you never think it's grown old. The Gospel of Luke records it. It's a difficult passage, folks. It is difficult to read. There was a dear, dear lady in our church in Birmingham so many years ago. She was 90 years old. And every time you talked about the cross, she wept. She wept. It's almost like you almost wanted to avoid it because you knew it was just going to make her cry. But I loved that heart. Sometimes in the news or in a news item or maybe even a movie, there's a warning that something's going to be graphic. And they warn you about that. And in a sense, Luke chapter 23 needs a warning. It is a difficult passage to read because it's on Christ's sacrifice on our behalf and how deep that goes. Follow with me today as I read. I'm going to start in verse 1 of chapter 23. I'm going to read about 34 verses, right up to where I just introduced that phrase about Lord's forgiveness. And today I'm, I'm reading from the Lexham English version. <laughs> I like the freshness of the wording. And you can follow along in your passage, but some of the words kind of popped off the page, and I enjoyed that. Chapter 23 begins, And the whole assembly of them rose up and brought him before Pilate. And they began to accuse him, saying, We have found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to pay taxes to Caesar, and saying, He himself is Christ a king. And Pilate asked him, saying, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him and said, You say so. So Pilate said to the chief priests and to the crowds, I find no basis for an accusation against this man. But they insisted, saying, He incites the people, teaching throughout the whole of Judea and beginning from Galilee as far as here. And when Pilate heard this, he asked if this man was a Galilean. And when he found out that he was from the jurisdiction of Herod, he sent him over to Herod, who was also in Jerusalem in those days. And when Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad, for he had been wanting to see him for a long time, because he had heard about him and was hoping to see some miracle performed by him. So he questioned him at considerable length, but he answered nothing to him. And the chief priests and the scribes are standing there vehemently accusing him. And Herod with his soldiers also treated him with contempt. And after mocking him and dressing him in glittering clothes, he sent him back to Pilate. And both Herod and Pilate became friends with one another on that same day, for they had previously been enemies of one another. So Pilate called together the chief priests and the rulers and the people and said to them, You brought me this man as one who is misleading the people, and behold, I have examined him before you, and I find nothing in this man as basis for accusation uh, which you are making against him. But neither did Herod. 
because he sent him back to us. And behold, nothing deserving death has been done by him. Therefore, I will punish him and release him. But they all cried out in unison, saying, Take this man away and release for us Barabbas, who had been thrown in prison because of a certain insurrection that had taken place in the city and for murder. And Pilate, wanting to release Jesus, addressed them again. But they kept crying out, saying, Crucify, crucify him. So he said to them a third time, Why? What wrong has this man done? I find no basis for an accusation deserving death in him. Therefore, I will punish him and release him. But they were urgent, demanding with loud cries that he be crucified. And, they, and their cries prevailed. And Pilate decided that their demand should be granted. And he released the one who had been thrown into prison because of insurrection and murder, whom they had been asking for. And Jesus was handed over to their will. And as they led him away, they seized Simon, a certain man of Cyrene, who was coming from the country, and placed the cross on him to carry it behind Jesus. And a great crowd of the people were following him, and the woman, and of women who were mourning and lamenting him. But turning to them, Jesus said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, days are coming in which they will say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that did not give birth and the breasts that did not nurse. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us and to the hills, cover us. For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? The two other criminals were also led away to be executed with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and the other on his left. But Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. I find it interesting in that text I just read to you from the Lexham translation. The last verse there, but Jesus said, forgive, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing, has double brackets on both sides of it. And I thought, well, what is that all about? My curiosity got me. I really do not enjoy wrestling a whole lot with trans, um, translation variants, as they call them. Uh, what might be in one manuscript, and it might not be in another manuscript, and, and that's another world, and that's another group of people, and that's not me. That's a bunch of dusty manuscripts that they pull out, and people dig through them. And I'm thankful that they do that work, because they produce for us translations as accurate as they possibly can. It is not an easy task. But nevertheless, I appreciate what they do. What I found, what those double brackets meant with that verse, was that there were some manuscripts found that did not have that verse in it. And I said, really? That would be a surprise to me. And so I did a little bit more research, and I'm going to spare you the details of that argument. But it's very interesting that uh, what it came down to was there were some who apparently were part of those trans uh, manuscripts that thought that the words Jesus said, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they're doing, did not mesh up with the fact that in AD 70 he punished them for what they had done. 
that the destruction of the temple in A.D. 70 and all the misfortune of the Jews didn't look as if they were forgiven. And so the text might have been added, this is what they're saying, um, because it was the Savior's way to seek forgiveness for sinners. Some translators thought it ought to be there, and the editors of the Lexham translation wasn't sure. And so what they did was they said, well, it does speak accurately of what Jesus would have said, and we can't possibly come to an absolute conclusion of long there, so they put it in brackets and put it in anyway. Make sense? It's like, ah, just leave it alone. It sounds perfect to me. But uh, anyway, I, I read all that, and maybe that interests you, and maybe that doesn't interest you at all. But here's what I thought. When it comes to forgiveness, I believe some people put brackets around it because they're really not sure it was meant for them. I think some people feel that way. When you look at this context I just read to you, and you see, as I read it to you, those who were present at the crucifixion scene, to whom was Jesus speaking when he said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they are doing. Let's walk through a couple of folks in the crowd. Would you with me here? It says in the very first verse of chapter number 23, the whole body of them got up and brought him before Pilate. If you back up to the previous chapter, verse number 66, for example, chapter 2266, we find out who the whole body of them are. It says, that was the council of the elders of the people. They were chief priests and scribes. That was that group that got up together and brought him before Pilate. These are the spiritual leaders of Israel, by the way. You've seen them a lot in the gospel records. And most of the time, are you happy to see them on the page? Probably not. Probably not. They were the spiritual leaders. Um, it was the same group, though it might have been different individuals, but it was the same group that Herod called before him to ascertain the location where Christ was to be born. He called the scribes and the chief priests. These are the same folks, the group, that argued with Jesus all the way through his ministry. And you find that in almost every single chapter as you go through the gospel narrative. These are the people who detested him. And they made no pretense about it. They plotted to take his wife, or his, his, his life. They paid Judas to betray him. They brought troops up into the Garden of Gethsemane to arrest him, and they put him on trial. These are the men that Jesus addressed in Matthew 23. He says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites. The hearts of these men dripped with envy and hatred. All the way through. They would rather grab a stone and stand over a sinner than to hear Jesus forgive and let them go free. In our own judgmental ways, we can be a lot like them, can't we? Judgmental. 
Who was it that Jesus said, Father, forgive them? The whole body got up and brought him before Pilate. Verse 1 says, let's put Pilate in our story. Pilate was there too. Pilate had gone down in history as a man who cowered to the demands of the Jewish leaders. Pilate knew that Jesus was innocent. You heard that plenty of times in the text. He even was warned by his wife not to have anything to do with this man. But he wanted to retain his position as Roman leader over the people. The text says this, and there's a handful of verses, but I'm going to repeat them. So now watch Pilate in action, will you? In verse 2, they began to accuse him, saying, We found this man misleading our nations and forbidding to pay taxes to Caesar, and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. So Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him and said, It is as you say. Then Pilate said to the chief priest in the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. But they kept on insisting, saying he stirs up the people. He's teaching over all Judea, starting in Galilee, even as far as this place. And when Pilate heard it, he asked whether this man was a Galilean. When he learned that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, boy, he said, there's my out. And he sent him on. I added that phrase. Did you catch that? That was just a little bit. But uh, he sent him on to Herod who himself was in Jerusalem at this time. Jump down to verse 11. Herod, with his soldiers, after treating him with contempt and mocking him, dressed him in a gorgeous robe, sent him back to Pilate. And I could only see Pilate saying, Oh, no, here it comes again. Now, Herod and Pilate became friends with one another that day. That doesn't mean a great deal, because uh, neither of them were the kind of people you'd probably want as a friend. Verse 13, Pilate summoned the chief priests and the rulers and the people and said, You brought this man to me as one who incites the people to rebellion. And behold, having examined him before you, I have found no guilt in this man regarding the charges you made against him. Nor has Herod, for he sent him back to us. And behold, nothing deserving death has been done by him. Therefore, I will punish him and release him. That's what you do with an innocent man, right? You punish him and then release him. He goes on to say, he was obliged to release to them a, at the feast one prisoner, and they wanted uh, Barabbas. And uh, Pilate said in verse 20, he wanted to release Jesus, address them again, but they kept calling out, saying, crucify him, crucify him. And he said to them the third time, why, what evil has this man done? I found no guilt demanding death, therefore I will punish him and release him. And they were insistent with loud voices again, he asked, uh, they asked that he be crucified, and their voices prevailed. Pilate pronounced sentence that their demand be granted. He delivered Jesus over to their will. When we see the hatred of these religious leaders, we also see the cowardness of Pilate to stand up and say, No, I will not do it your way. He was all about satisfying the people rather than standing for the truth. What was the most significant statement Pilate asked Jesus? What is truth? It's not so uncommon, folks, though, when we evaluate a Pilate, a person who would satisfy people instead of standing for truth. I, 
I wonder how many times our hearts surrendered truth in order not to be opposed by a crowd. That's Pilate. Who did Jesus mean when he said, Father, forgive them? Let's add Herod. You've seen a little touch of his story in the midst of this. He was son of Herod the Great, who we read about at the birth of Jesus. This is Herod Antipas. He was part of the crucifixion of Jesus in a very interesting way. He wanted to see Jesus, verse number 8 says. He wanted to see Jesus. He was glad to see Jesus. All the way through his reign, he had heard of Jesus and the things that Jesus had been doing. He wanted to have a hearing with him. He wanted to see some signs performed by him. He questioned him at some length. Jesus never answered him. Never answered him. The chief priests and the scribes were were really stirring up trouble that day, and Herod let his soldiers mistreat Jesus. They had contempt for him. They mocked him. They dressed him in a gorgeous robe. The other texts add the other things they've done as well, with crowns of thorns and beating him on the head and striking him with their fists and pulling the hair from his beard. They sent him back to Pilate. Herod mocked Jesus. He mocked him. Herod was a bully. He found great enjoyment in the humiliation of Jesus. Now, it wasn't that Jesus or his message was really unknown to him, but just like his very actions when it came to John the Baptist, here is the man who loved a party. And the opportunity to make others look small in the presence of his important attendance. Mocking is usually the term we use for those who are among the worst with their mouths. They criticized the Savior and the truth of the gospel. It was Herod who had John put to death. And yet so many times when we think of those who mocked and and use their mouth in an abusive way, as Herod especially did. There's a song that we've sung here several times called How Deep the Father's Love for Us. The second verse is stunning. It's hard to sing. Behold the man upon a cross, my sin upon his shoulders. Ashamed, I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. His dying breath has brought me life. I know that it is finished. Who did Jesus mean when he said, Father, forgive them? There was a man there, a traveler, named Simon. He was from Cyrene. He carried the cross of Jesus, we read of. He was pressed into service by the soldiers to carry the cross of humiliation through the streets of Jerusalem and up the hill of Golgotha. I don't know about you, but when my plans are thwarted and I have to do something I don't want to do, I'm not usually happy, are you? I just wonder if Simon here might have become bitter or harbor some sort of resentment toward Jesus He's carrying the cross of a criminal he did not know. He's carrying that cross through the streets and hearing the mocking sounds 
as if he was guilty too. He had plans, no doubt, and yet they were altered. And he was called to do something I'm sure he didn't want to do. And you may say, okay, Simon, maybe you did have something. Maybe. We don't know. Maybe you had something in your heart that struck you that day. Was his life any different for having carried that piece of a cross over those stones and on the way up the hill? Was it any different? We don't know. But we do know this. We read of his sons. One particular was named Rufus. In the book of Romans, it speaks of Rufus. The chosen one in the Lord. And it speaks of his family, his mother, as Paul says, his mother and mine. (laughs) She became very dear. That would be the wife of Simon. We don't know the rest of that story. But when Jesus stood there up on a cross and said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do, was it Simon that he was talking about? What about the women we read about just a little bit ago? The women who were the daughters of Jerusalem, it said in verse number 28, weeping over the suffering of Jesus. Now, it's a very tender moment. We agree with that. But even in that, Jesus had to correct their view. Mourning and lamenting is generally the posture of those who have no hope. Death is the end. Hopelessness is in their heart. And Jesus told them, it didn't sound good as you read it. Worst days are coming. And if they had heard his message, they would have known that the future was going to be hard for the Jews, but there was hope in Jesus. And that's where they would find their rest. How often he knocked on the doors and they would not open How often he tried to gather them like a hen would gather her chicks, but they would not. In their hearts, they only saw loss. And they wept for that what might have been. And I ask a simple question. How often are we prone to do the very same thing? The hearts that we have are just as likely to focus on a loss than focus on a Savior. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. There were two criminals there. Luke doesn't tell us a lot in this passage we just read about them. So we're going to reserve them for later, because there is conversation regarding them later. But there were two criminals there. One of them was changed forever, because of the words of Jesus. But there's others here, too. And we'll get to them as well. But there was a Roman soldier that we know of called a centurion who saw Jesus die. And he made one of the most remarkable statements for he was one that was probably the most responsible for the fact that he did die on a cross in that manner. And yet in the end, he began praising God and saying, certainly this man was innocent. I don't think he went home the same man 
as he was in the morning when he started his job. Who did Jesus forgive? Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. There's the envious and hateful religious people. There's the crowds who would rather have popularity, or the cowards, rather, who would rather have popularity than to stand on the truth. There were bullies who mocked and belittled others so that they looked good in a crowd. There's a traveler who might have had his day altered and he resented it. There's women who focus only on loss and not on the Savior. There's a soldier who possibly drove the nails into his hands and feet. Which one of those could have been us if we were there? Simple point I want to make today. Jesus' death on the cross was for your forgiveness and for mine. That I know for sure. When John writes his uh, epistles, he says simply, I am writing to you, little children, because your sins have been forgiven you for his name's sake. Those are powerful words. The word forgiven. Forgiven. To release from legal or moral obligation or consequence. To cancel. To remit. To pardon. These are the first words we understand of Jesus from the cross. And yet they embodied the whole of why he was there. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. The whole aspect of his suffering was wrapped up in those phrases. He was there so that we could be forgiven. Forgiven of our hatred. Forgiven of our envy. Forgiven of our desire for popularity at the expense of the truth. Forgiven for our ways of bullying and seeking to look good in the eyes of others, than belittling others. Forgiven for our resentments, for being moved away from our own plans. Forgiven for focusing on the loss of the temporary instead of focusing on Jesus. Forgiveness for the sins that nailed Him to the cross. Where would we be without forgiveness? Where would we be without forgiveness from the Father? He asked the Father to forgive. Do you think the Father said, I'll think about it? Or do you think he did what his son asked? Would you say that if you were any of these individuals and you heard those words, it would have changed your life? Now that you've heard these words, and you realize, yes, he died there for me, aren't you glad he said them? Father, forgive them. If you have never sought forgiveness from your sins, if you have never known that it was Jesus who died for your sins, that you might be forgiven, you can know him today. Today you can know Him as your Savior. That day is not past. He didn't say, I'm done with you. I'll never give you an opportunity. 
For today he gives you one. Another day to understand what he has done for you. Another day to understand that he died for you. So that you might be forgiven. You can turn to him right now and you can receive the forgiveness you seek. You can almost hear him saying, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they've done. Father, forgive them. Those are precious words to me. How about you? When we take up this cup and this bread, we always focus upon the fact that Jesus did this. And he said, this is for you. It was done for, in remembrance of me. Those phrases pop up a lot as we read the phrase about him taking the bread and breaking it and giving it to the disciples and the cup, having shared it with the disciples. And we understand these things don't save you. They're a reminder of what your Savior did do to save you. He gave his life for you. He died on a cross for you. And the first words on that cross was that you be forgiven. Do you know that today? Do you know that today? The communion service is for those who know that. This isn't just a ritual we do. We just want to do a ritual every now and then. It's not that. This is a reminder to us who know Christ as Savior. Yes, indeed, He died for me. He died for me. And if you can say that too from your heart, you know Him as your Savior. You have known that forgiveness. Take of the bread and the cup with us, please. That's what it's all about, is the remembrance. And I know it's humiliating in one side to remember that it was my sin that put him there. And many times as we take that cup or we take that drink, we have long enough to sit and pause and pray. And we talk to the Lord about the fact that, you know, my sins are terrible. And yet, don't ever say, and they can't be forgiven. Because that's why Jesus went to that cross. But at the same time, as you reflect upon that, please don't forget to be thankful people. Thankful people. When's the last time you said, thank you, Lord Jesus, for dying for me? Thank you, Lord Jesus, for forgiving me. As we partake together of this communion service, remember what the bread was for. Remember what the cup is for. It's a reminder of a Savior who loves you so much, He died, that you might be forgiven. Praise the Lord for that. Praise the Lord. I'll have a word of prayer, and then I'm going to have the the men come forward who assist me this morning in our communion service. Heavenly Father, you know every single heart in this room. If there's somebody struggling right now with forgiveness issues, show them how powerful these words are that came from our Savior who died on a cross. His very first phrase, Father, forgive them. And may they find there the release they need, a Savior who has paid the price that we might walk free and have peace with God. Thank you, Lord, for what you have done for us. Work in our midst, for this is to change our lives. Seven statements that changed our lives forever. And we thank you, Lord, for them as we partake together of this service. May Jesus Christ be praised. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.